Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. They say it takes a village to raise a child. I'm Catherine Ryan, and here we draw on my conversations with experts on 9 to Noon to help you navigate family life. As far as our next guest's concerned, there's no such word as can't. Times journalist, mindset author, leader in the field of high performance, two times Olympian and former Commonwealth Games English table tennis champion, Matthew Said is all that and more. He's uh, one well known for his two previous books, Bounce and Black Box Thinking. In fact, I interviewed him some years ago when Bounce was published. His latest book, however, is for children. It's called You Are Awesome. Find your confidence to become brilliant at almost anything. By reading it, he would like children as young as nine to realise they can reach their potential, fuelled by a healthy dose of self-belief, hard work and determination. And he really wants to encourage children not to be afraid of making mistakes. And that for many now famously and accomplished, or famously accomplished people, success was earned rather than easy. He says bravery and resilience is the key to kids being able to survive in this very dynamic and largely unknowable world they're growing up into. And he draws on his own story as well. Matthew Said is uh, staying up late for us in London. Thanks for that, Matthew, and welcome. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me on the show. It's interesting already in the time since we spoke last so much has changed in the environments of children, but you draw a lot on your own upbringing and your own life experience. I wonder if we could begin there Uh, and just what it was that you went through in childhood that set you on the path both of achieving but of identifying how and why that can happen for just about anyone. Yeah, I think a key thing was my parents, my mum and dad. Um, I remember vividly in a school play at the age of about nine, I had one line in Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And I looked out at the audience and I could see my parents and all those expectant faces. And I got very, very nervous. And I fluffed the line. I, I completely forgot what I was supposed to say. And I worried that afterwards my dad might say, well, son, you've really let us down. On the contrary, he smiled, he had a beaming face, and he said, you know what, the key thing is that you tried. The next time you're under pressure, it will be a lot easier. And he was right about that. And and my parents always emphasized a can-do attitude. Take the initiative, take risks, Occasionally, if you take risks, you will look silly, but the world continues to turn. You learn an important lesson and you grow as a consequence. And I think that is a mindset that can be applied to virtually anything and is probably the most powerful asset anybody can have. It came to you through parents uh, who'd had their own experiences, your father uh, as an immigrant, um, and dealing with some pretty blatant racism. Um, on your mother's side, I think, there was um, you know, grandparents working down the mines from the age of 14. Was that storytelling, or, or was it more the values of their experiences that you felt you inherited? I think probably as a youngster, it was less the stories and more the way that they would 
interact with me, they would never really praise me if I had done something that was very easy. And they wouldn't say, oh, son, you're a genius or you're really talented. Instead, they would often praise the process and they particularly praised and valued having a go. Even if it meant that you weren't necessarily going to get it right the first time around, they, they kind of tried to reinforce this idea of life as a journey and being willing to step outside of your comfort zone and pursue your path. I mean, the thing that worries me a lot, and you kind of alluded to it in your opening question, is, is that young people today are surrounded by a, an online world, a digital world, particularly on the social media, where everybody has a perfect body. Any imperfections are airbrushed out and that people try and pretend that they're living lives without any blemishes at all. And in, in that kind of an environment, it becomes very difficult to ever take risks or to ever admit to a weakness because it feels as if you're doing something that is deeply humiliating. Whereas, of course, that willingness to take risks is so important. And so I think that that was the, the fundamental lesson that I got from my parents. And, and I, I look back on it you know, to this day with huge gratitude. There was a fork in the road moment for you, and I, I think you uh, used the situation of a, of a child being given a table tennis table as an example of, of the fork in the road. And is it the bit of kit or the opportunity, or is it something, some sort of flash of inspiration where they begin to see this is the way I can find out who I can be? What are the various ways that, or the various pathways that a child or a young person can begin to see how this works in practice? And what was your story? Uh, well, now my parents bought a table tennis table and they put it in the garage of our home in suburban Reading. And it was a hugely curious thing to do because my dad didn't play table tennis and neither did my mum. But they thought that I might enjoy it. And that fork in the road was those opening points that I played with my dad. You know, he was better than me at table tennis. He won those opening points. And I could have just retreated back to the bedroom and you know, got on my PlayStation and, and tried to forget all about table tennis. But I saw it as a challenge. He made it interesting and exciting. And that particular journey from being a completely hopeless table tennis player to an international one, it was a long journey. It was one that I enjoyed almost every step of the way, but it did require occasionally picking myself up after a very difficult defeat. Um, but I do contrast what might have happened if I had walked away and not really ever had an opportunity to realize the potential that I clearly had. But my sense is that since retiring from table tennis, I, I write a column, as you mentioned in the intro to The Times, I write books. I do a lot of public speaking. I have a podcast. But I've sort of applied the same process to each of them. Not very talented at any of them, if I'm being completely honest. The first draft of Bounce that you mentioned was pretty much unpublishable. But if you stick at it and you get feedback and you ask mentors and other people, what could I do better? What could I do differently? And you approach every day as a, as a learning opportunity. I think that virtually anyone can achieve pretty great things. What is interesting about that is that there's often a vehicle through which someone learns the traits or learns their own uh, characteristics or confronts their own characteristics. And we, we should 
see for any child what it is that grabs their attention and what it is that's going to become that vehicle because it can be transferable. You went on to Oxford, I think, got yourself uh, all the way through to an Oxford education. Um, You gave up school early because you were concentrating on your table tennis, but still found a way through your A-levels and on the way to university. So is that another lesson? It doesn't matter what it is that grabs a child. Encourage encourage the enthusiasm and the pursuit because that's the way they're learning the skill sets that, that, that will be transferable. Yeah, I think that is the key thing, the transferability of that, of that process. Um, I think, for example, of the public speaking that I now do, you know, I mentioned the fluff line in that school play. The first time I actually had to give a speech in public, my goodness, my heart almost beat out of my chest and I was sweating profusely. But I went to a local public speaking club because I knew that this was a really important and valuable skill. I craved being able to do it. And I thought, you know what, if I practice, I'll get used to the pressure. And and I did. And you do get used to it. And it was the same in table tennis. All the different weaknesses that I had, particular strokes that I hadn't mastered, you know, you work at them and eventually they get better. Um, and I, I do think that that is a fundamental lesson for young people. Success of whatever kind is a journey. Nobody is born able to speak three languages or to be able to hit a moving ping pong ball or to speak spontaneously in front of a large group of people. Some people start better than others, for sure, but everybody can go on a journey to some level of competence if they're prepared to put in the hours, if they're prepared to recover from the setbacks, and if they have that positive embracing approach. What is interesting is that that doesn't end either. It's not like you suddenly make it or that you're suddenly imbued with qualities that are... Um, indefensible, and your experience at the Sydney Olympics. I'm sorry to bring it up; it pro- you know probably still hurts, but it was a <laughs> it was a classic choke moment. And the interesting thing about that very unpleasant word is that some athletes at the very top level can come back from that, and some can't. Was that a lesson you had to relearn again as an adult? Yeah, and I think the experience. I think the experience of choking at Sydney. I mean, it's worth just sort of. Providing the context, you know, it's a four-year build-up to any Olympic Games. Uh, we had prepared, me and my coach and my sparring partners, really carefully on the Gold Coast with a venue that matched the conditions that I would face in the competition venue. Um, and I went out to play, and it was bright lights, and I remember stepping from be behind the curtain, and my coach said to me, I think he was trying to inspire me, but it had a slightly different um consequence he said look what happens over the course of the next 45 minutes will determine whether the last four years were a waste of time or not and suddenly I felt this deep anxiety and I did fall apart I played really poorly I got knocked out extremely quickly despite being with a chance of winning a medal Um, and I went back home and I felt very, very embarrassed about what had happened. I avoided my parents for a few days, didn't want to see my former coach. But then I realized that this was also a great opportunity to understand what had gone wrong and to develop techniques to make sure it didn't happen again. And there's a real contrast here between, I don't know if these people are familiar to you, Jimmy White, he's a snooker player, great snooker player. He lost in six world finals, often by the tiniest of margins. And I interviewed him and I said, well, what went wrong there, Jimmy? 
And he said, well, it's just one of those things. I haven't got the nerve to win a big match, and there's nothing I can do about it. Rory McIlroy, a great golfer, fell apart at the U.S. Masters when he was in with the chance of winning his first major title. But he went back and he studied what had gone wrong. He realized that he was particularly anxious, wasn't talking to his caddy, wasn't interacting with the spectators. So at the very next major title, he decided to change his approach. He talked to his caddy until 15 seconds before addressing the ball. It kept him calm. He'd got these more sophisticated techniques, and he won that major by, I think, some record number of shots. In other words, if one sees performing under pressure as something approaching a skill that one can grow in, the behaviors that one deploys are completely different if you think it's something you either have got or haven't got. Because if you think it's something you either have or haven't got, the first time you mess up, you're going to walk away for the rest of your life from anything that resembles a pressurised situation. That is a lesson for, for parents and for caregivers and supporters of kids, actually, as well. And we'll get to more about the messaging, how to get the messaging right. But you, you, you quote the old classics, Einstein, on how many thousand times he failed before he succeeded. Michael Jordan on how many match-winning shots at goal he had and missed. And the difference is the person who can accept the failure and go back and, you know, keep going and, and do it again, who can see failure as part of the process, and the person who is so terrified of failure or so disturbed yes. by what it feels like that they can't. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. I think a lot of this, as you imply, hinges on the way young people and older people interpret failure. You look at all the successful industries, aviation, failures are analyzed, the learning opportunities are extracted, changes are made, and as a direct consequence of this culture of continuous improvement, not just the big failures but the near misses, aviation is now an extremely safe industry. There are other industries, I mean, healthcare I think is one, where failures, unavoid, you know, where if there's an avoidable death, Doctors often won't share what's happened. They're worried about being litigated. The lessons aren't learned. And that's why avoidable medical error is one of the biggest killers in the Western world. And I think that the high tech sector in Silicon Valley, you know, they will deliberately fail fast. They'll get a prototype out into the market or some software, find where the inevitable bugs and deficiencies are so that they can iterate and reiterate what it actually looks like and therefore get to the right result faster. I think that approach of seeing suboptimal outcomes as opportunities that can be leveraged in the pursuit of growth is one of the great lessons of science, the scientific revolution, but we can integrate it into our own lives too. It was Thomas Edison, of course, who found 10,000 ways that don't work before the one or more that did. Let's talk. That's right. Let's talk about the, the mindset then that, that we're hoping to help encourage in, in young people. It reminds me a lot, and it's probably drawn on Carol Dweck's work about about the growth mindset. So you've got one person's voice going, "I'm no good at that." Someone else is going, "I'm no good at that yet. I'll be better, much better if I try." One says, "I'm so stupid." The other says, "I just haven't done enough practice yet." One says she's a genius. The other says, I wonder what practice she's doing. One is giving you capable capable steps of improvement. The other is intimidating you. 
And is this really get to the heart of the kind of self-talk, such a 1980s word, isn't it? But the kind of internal <laughs> monologue that we really want children to be able to develop. Yeah, that, that goes to the absolute heart of it. And this concept of growth mindset, I think, is very important for young people. It's effectively seeing success as a journey rather than as something that you're either endowed with at birth or you're unfortunate enough not to be endowed with at birth. Those in a fixed mindset tend to see success as very binary in nature. Either they've got the gift, they've got that genetic inheritance, they have the right kind of brain, they have that predisposition, or they don't. And of course, if you think it's binary, every time you try something and you fail, and of course, even talented people fail from time to time, it can often sap motivation, undermine self-belief, and really destroy the journey to one's potential that is so important. Those in the growth mindset have a fundamentally different uh, approach, and therefore they interpret the setbacks, difficulties, and challenges in a different way. And you can see this in everything from mathematics to sport to personal relationships, even giving up an addiction. If you've got a growth mindset, if you've got that can-do attitude, it is hugely predictive of actually doing the things you need to do to get to where you want to go. Encouraging that, the, the, I, I'm also just re- reflecting on Carol Dweck's advice again, which is not to talk about, not talk to your child about you being so clever or so talented or so whatever, but to say you worked really hard at that or you tried really hard at that or I can see how you got that result. So you're rewarding the process because if you build up the you're clever or you're talented or, talented or you're brilliant, the first bit of evidence that they're not is, inter- right. is internalised. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, it's quite subtle. Um, you know, it sounds very empowering to say to a young person who's just drawn a particularly nice painting, you know, oh, wow, you're a genius. You're the next Picasso. But of course, the problem is the moment they draw something that isn't Picasso-esque, the walls of their world comes crumbling down. You know, you see this particularly with, you know, bright young people who are used to getting grade A's whose self-image is bound up with their perfection. And then the moment they come up against a difficult challenge, it's like, oh, my goodness, I wasn't that talented after all. And that can really crush them. Even worse, they're so worried about being crushed by taking on a difficult challenge, they don't take it on in the first place. Whereas if you say, wow, you worked really hard, if they think, well, if I want to do a better drawing, I have to work a bit harder or a bit smarter. Or if you praise the process, I love the way the colors fit together on that page, They'll think, well, if I want to draw a more sophisticated drawing, I have to make the colors fit together in a more sophisticated way. In other words, the praise words are aligning the young mind towards the journey they need to go on to unlock their potential rather than inadvertently insinuating they have some gift that will be called into question the first time they're given a challenge they can really learn from. I think great educators, great teachers, great parents, you know, they, they nudge children in the right direction with the way they praise, the way they interact, and, and the verbal interventions. You you do the list of dreams early on in the book, and this is a young person's dreams, and again, this is where let them find, you know, don't become all upset by the fact they're talking about a career you're not interested in them having. What What is the process of letting them first imagine, and then second, begin to take some steps 
towards what it is they want to get good at and that word practice that we'll come to in a moment. And as a table tennis champion, I I bet it was a word uh, that was dominating your life for a great many years. <laughs> so let's begin with yeah. the list, list, list of dreams. How do you talk, what kind of things can you do to encourage your child to dream, to imagine what, what it is they might be able to do and want to do? I think that's really difficult to do well as, as, as an adult. I think it's quite easy to try and impose one's own. And when I speak as a father of two young children, one's own passions upon one's children. And that isn't necessarily a bad thing if it's done in a way that is um, that they can volunteer either to endorse or reject your particular passion. I think, I think that, so let me put that in a slightly different way. I think the danger is if a child is doing a particular activity of whatever kind, piano, violin, not because they internally endorse it, not because they're passionate about it, not because they're intrinsically motivated by it, but to please a parent or to please a mentor or teacher, it's just too big of an internal contradiction. And they'll, eventually they're almost certain to burn out and later in life will probably look at that parent with some level of resentment. But if a child embraces that dream for themselves and they're dragging the parent to the football or the violin, that's a great sign that they're intrinsically motivated. And when they are, you know, every now and again, they may go through a difficult period and they kind of turn their back on it. But you know deep down, because you know that child well, that they really love that activity. Then I think a nudge or a push can be a very positive thing. But if one pushes when there isn't really that internal endorsement, I think that, that can be problematic. As we said earlier, it doesn't really matter what the first vehicle is or the second vehicle is. Their desire to do something is what's going to encourage the development of the kind of thinking and processes that you want. Just while we're talking about it, we were sort of there earlier on the idea of the fixed mindset versus the growth mindset. There's some classics, aren't there? You've got the top 10 fixed mindset thoughts, and I think we all recognise, <laughs> many of us would recognise some if not all of them. You know, they're, they're classics, aren't they? It's we're all hopeless at maths in our family. My memories, yeah, right. my memories, yeah. rubbish. French vocab won't go in. I'd rather, oh, I'd rather yeah. die than stand up and speak in front of people. And they sound, yeah, they yeah. sound harmless, but are they? Oh, I, I think this is a massive problem. My, I mean, it's difficult to know where to start. You hear this from young people all the time. You know, at one point in their mathematical development, they see one kid in the class doing it better than them. They draw the inference, well, I'm obviously not cut out for maths. And the consequence is they switch off from the maths lessons. It becomes a completely futile task. If, on the other hand, they think of mathematical understanding as a bit of a journey and that they can plug the deficiencies in their knowledge by engaging and asking the teacher questions, those behaviors are going to drive the numeracy that is such a great asset in life. Or, you know, the first time you speak in public, well, I'm not very good at it. And then you go through the whole of your life using sophisticated avoidance strategies, never to have to give a speech again. You're essentially hijacking your own development, your own occupational pathway because of your self-limiting beliefs. It's catastrophic. And it's, and it's such a, it's a tragedy sometimes. You know, I've met older people who, I had an amazing letter not long ago from somebody who said that their self-limiting beliefs had effectively marooned them for years, 
when all they needed to do was try again, try a few more times, build the skill, build the confidence, and they would have been able to pursue their passion with far more vigour. It occurs to me this is also really important when it comes to relationships for the same thing. If you can't take disappointment, we all have to swallow some rejection, we all have to go through the embarrassment sometimes of, of making an approach to someone, whether it's a school clique or a, you know, or, or a romantic partner, you miss out again, don't you, if you avoid yes. the discomfort of that not going the way you hoped. Well, I, I, I agree completely. I mean, I, I feel slightly on less safe terrain talking about relationships, but I do. Um, I have a, a wonderful marriage to a great, great person. Um, some of my earlier relationships were much less successful, but you're absolutely right. Unless one is prepared to take the risk and unless one is prepared to see some of the difficulties um, not necessarily as meaning that you are a terrible, terrible person, but perhaps you're just not compatible, then you're never going to get out there and find the person who really makes you happy. Um, and I think you're probably right. That growth mindset is as applicable to romantic and other relationships as it is to anything else. You make the point also that being challenged is good for brain development. It's hard work. You can almost feel the neural connections happening as you challenge yourself. But let's talk about practice because there's a difference between good practice and, and, and less effective uh, practice. Not all practice is the same. As you say, just doing the same thing over and over again isn't going to get a different outcome. Actually, that was my earlier guess, but it holds. How do you explain to young people... The, the, the qualities of good practice. How do you go about that in the book? Yeah, I, th I think there are t two key things. One is you must make sure you get feedback. You need to know whether what you're doing is good or not so good in order to, I mean, most of I mean, in sport, it's obvious. If you hit a golf ball and it goes off to the right, then you know you need to adapt your technique to get it to go down the middle. But if you're writing a historical essay, you really need that feedback from the teacher to figure out whether or not your analysis is sound or whether you could write it in a more effective way. Um, but also, the, the other key thing is being stretched. There's a great example of ice dancers. The, the ones who fall over in practice tend to learn the fastest. And the reason is they're attempting jumps that are quite difficult, so they fall down. The ones who just keep doing jumps, they can already do incredibly easily. They never fall down, but they don't grow either. And I think that willingness to take on the, the, the slightly tougher challenges, the ones that occasionally mean that you fall down on the ice rink or the problems in, in maths that you can't quite solve, that's when you're really building connections, when, when you're really stretching your current conceptual limitations. How do you deal with kids who are dealing with things that, that you can't do much about? Because our, our concept is, as learners are, um, you know, brain scientists will tell us, are formed when we're quite young. And some of what you miss out, miss out on in those early years of life, it's, you're always going to be living with, right? You can learn to mitigate, hopefully be supported to mitigate, but you're always going to be living with. Do you have ideas on how to address some of those inbuilt doubts that kids have or uh, things they are going to have to always come up against, whether it's mindset, lack of confidence, lack of belief in themselves from an early age? I lost you a bit in the middle. You, you mean sort of self-doubts? Just that, that, that our confidence 
as learners is something that we develop quite young. If we miss out on things as very little children, we know in those early formative years, we can be yeah, left. Yeah. We can be left carrying the consequences of that. Is there a different messaging? Is there a different support system, or is it just more of both needed for those kids? Yeah, I, I, I think it probably depends a bit on context. Um, I think you're right. Early experiences can have legacy effects. Um, But I would also say, I mean, unless we're talking about, you know, very severe trauma, which may well need counselling or some clinical intervention, um, the great teaching, brilliant mentoring, positive parenting of the right kind, I think can really address some of the more minor difficulties that one experiences as a young person. And one without wanting to exaggerate the claim, I think if one thinks of oneself as having had an experience that means one can never um, develop in a particular area, that's likely to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, Much better to say, you know, I've had that tough experience and maybe it's going to affect me in particular ways, but you know what, I think I can deal with it, particularly if the dealing with it enables me to do something I truly want to do. Obviously, the future world of work, the looming world of work and the number of changes that are going to be constant for this generation coming through is on your mind. But what else is when you look at the challenges for quite a young generation in building its sense of self, individual sense of self and competence and all all these things? What's on your mind? You mentioned social media earlier and, Mm. and, and the curse of perfectionism and Yep. You know, images online that aren't even anatomically possible. But this is what kids yep. are, are are absorbing. What what else is on your mind? as particular challenges. I, I, I think that the the speed of technological change is significant for our culture. Um, young people today will probably do up to fifteen to twenty jobs in their professional lives, many of which haven't yet been invented. Artificial intelligence, um, neural networks, quantum computing, mixed reality. All of these are really set to change in fundamental ways, the way that we work, the way we interact, the way we collaborate, and the way we build modern institutions. Given that that is the case, I think it becomes even more imperative to have a mindset that is capable of dealing with ambiguity, with complexity, with volatility, and with the unknown. Because You've got to embrace the unknown when the world is changing fast. And you know that ability to think flexibly, I think, is there's going to be a premium on that. I think for individuals and for societies, those softer skills that we've been talking about are going to be really, really important. Just being able to absorb and regurgitate knowledge, however robust, you know, like chemical formulae, won't be enough. The, the world's going to get a lot more complex and ambiguous, I think, and it's going to be the capacity to problem solve and think creatively about finding new solutions for which there aren't any canned answers. The challenge for parenting and caregiving in this circumstance is that makes people innately worry about making sure their child's got enough and they're achieving enough and they've got all the blocks that they need. Your point is more important uh, is to go, I don't mind if you mess stuff up, just give things a go. Yes, yes. And I mean, obviously, one wouldn't want to take it too far. There are certain things that one wouldn't want to do because it has an existential risk. But what I suppose what one wants to do 
at a sort of theoretical level is take on challenges that maximizes the learning whilst minimizing the potential cost. And I think there are ways to do that. There are great forums that enable you to do that, where it's public speaking or building social confidence or exam technique or, or whatever. But if you've got that mindset, you'll take on those challenges. Good talking to you. Thank you for staying up so late in the UK. Matthew Said, the latest book is You Are Awesome, Find Your Confidence and Dare to Be Brilliant at Almost Anything. This is for children. His previous books are Bounce and Black Box, Thinking More Targeted at Adult Audiences. This is kind of a toolkit, really, for younger readers with some great illustrations also accompanying it. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.